Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. This week, perhaps the most connected person I know, Professor Sri Srinivasan, former chief digital officer of New York City and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, on what you should be doing right now, this very moment, in the teeth of this jobs crisis to expand and shore up your professional network. Stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR member station VPM, using the power of media to educate, entertain, and inspire. More at vpm.org. Joining me from the Upper West Side of Manhattan is Professor Sri Srinivasan. He is the Visiting Professor of Digital Innovation at Stony Brook University, uh, famously Chief Digital Officer formerly of the Metropolitan Museum, of the City of New York City, and even Columbia University. Hi, Robin. Good to talk to you. We seem to talk only in times of crisis, mine or the planet's. I don't. <laughs> no, I, I I called you last time in a in a in a time of of relative peace. What was it? One or two years ago, where you were urging people at a time of uh, buoyant markets and near full employment to use that time to make sure that their networks are fortified and strong, and to check in on people, not for transactional reasons, but just to make sure that the network is there, that you care for other people, and. Everybody was in touch with me this week and said, I would love to hear from Professor Sri again. Thank you. And you're right. That could describe two years ago, but it also could describe one month ago when things were so good. It seemed like for many people in this country, it was never as great as it sounded in the, you know, in the publicity materials, but it certainly was a different time from where we are today. Just underscored for everybody, 22 million jobs lost in a little bit over four weeks. That has not happened. Uh, even, I think, in the throes of the Depression earlier, if you adjust for population, we've given back all the job gains of the post-financial crisis period. This is really a whip-lashing moment. And I'm sure you've been contacted by all manner of people who are suddenly uh, obsessing over LinkedIn or, or either have lost their jobs or fearful for their jobs. I just want to step back for a minute and get your first take because you're right there in my old neighborhood on the Upper West Side, on 96th Street indeed. And when did this become deadly serious for you? And moreover, did you have any inkling that you were going to be at, at ground zero, uh, at least in the United States for the global pandemic? Yeah, ground zero, not just not just in the United States. We feel like we're the ground zero for the entire world. New York has more cases than any country except the United States. And when this started, we had no idea. I can go back to a Twitter thread I started January 30th to talk about the coronavirus because I was aware of it and what, was, what did it mean for America and the world, January 30th. So here I am, somebody's very aware, but I never expected this. I knew it would come here, but to be in a position where we're told by doctors, by people on TV and others, just presume you have it. That's the world we're living in now. That you, If you live in Manhattan like I do, you have to presume you've, you have it now, or you had it, or you're a carrier and you're just asymptomatic. Like That's a stunning turn of events. And I can also say, you know, we use that word ground zero, which is in some ways a hallowed term because of the World Trade Center and the uh, people murdered there. But I can tell you that when people say this is like 9-11, I say in some ways it is and in some ways it absolutely isn't. In terms of the changes that need to come after this is nothing like what happened after 9-11. After 9-11, Nothing changed except in a few sectors. If you were in the military, it changed. If you were an Iraqi in Iraq, it changed. If you lived in Afghanistan, it changed because millions of people died. Thousands of Americans also died. And we had all that money spent, trillions of dollars spent. And nothing changed in America except the security theater at the airport, at buildings. But apart from that, nothing changed. Today, things have to change. The other comparison to 9-11 I'll make is a very personal one. I am now doing the math, and in uh, four five, or maybe even five people who have been to my house or whose homes I have been to in the last 20 years have died from COVID-19. And that same number of 9-11 was zero. Of course, we knew people who escaped. We knew people who didn't go into work that day. We knew people who knew people who died. But that comparison of four or five to zero 
tells you the scope of this particular tragedy in New York. And when we go outside now, and I'll also compare it one other way. Uh, a couple of months after 9-11, there was an event downtown, and my family's from India, and so I love wearing Indian kurtas. Those are those uh, very stylish Indian shirts that kind of go, go, to your, go past your waist. And I said, uh, I, I just put on a kurta, and I was going to an Indian event, uh, maybe November. And my wife, Rupa, absolutely refused to let me go because it was near ground zero. And she felt, rightly, that somebody seen in ethnic garb, South Asian, Middle Eastern-ish garb, walking through or near ground zero was going to get in trouble, had a chance at getting in trouble. And that kind of thinking about what you wear was the last time we did that. And today, oh my goodness, like when we go out, we are going out as if we're going into Chernobyl. Like we don't know what's about to happen, so we wear masks and gloves and uh, and think about every single thing we're going to touch, because by accident you do something wrong, one thing wrong, and you could pay for it with your life. That's how bad the situation is. Our dog is doing her part. Tara, who you've met, Tara was, uh, you know, a newborn, a newish beagle when you met. She is now more than four years old. And she used to go to the bathroom three to four times, get three to four walks a day. And now she gets two walks a day. And she's doing her part to keep us all alive here. The other thing I do have to give a shout out to her because she's lying on our bed is I get I get up and I've been told, as you have as well, that a loss of smell, the sense of smell and sense of taste is a sign that you might have COVID. And I've never been so grateful to have such a smelly dog. <laughs> You know, there's the quote from Vladimir Lenin, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. And when I first saw this, I think on Twitter, one of the platitudinous things on LinkedIn several weeks ago, it, it really did have me think back to 9-11. I was on the way to work that morning. I was on a crowded subway train uh, beneath the towers and I got off at Wall Street and ultimately continued on to uh, Brooklyn Heights and watched the atrocity kind of transpire in this gorgeous, crisp, you know, early autumn morning. Uh, what I was thinking of, and I lived in New York for more than a decade, is this kind of this kind of throws the entire New York sociological compact into question. I mean, you're supposed to be able to go on a crowded subway train and not think twice about it and not freak out if it's eight twenty a.m. and you have to squeeze in. Uh, things happen, but I I can't just imagine people being inches apart anymore. I completely agree. And can you imagine having to go on a plane and that first international flight you take and somebody coughs? What's going to happen to that guy? He's going to be escorted off the plane with or without a parachute 30,000 feet up because everyone's going to freak out. And that's the world we're heading into. And I have my parents and my in-laws live in India, you know, 15, 20 hours away. My kid brother lives 12 hours away in Dubai. When will I see them again? Those are all things that we never imagined we would be thinking about and wrestling with. At the same time, I would also say this is also a moment of opportunity as in the middle of tragedy and crisis, and I hope we'll get to talk about that as well. And I'm telling my kids every day as they are, uh, you met them when you came to do a story on us uh, back in the day four years ago, they're now 17-year-old juniors in high school. So for everyone who's listening and is uh, complaining about their toddlers and keeping them engaged and locked down, imagine locking down two 17-year-olds. Not so easy. So let's flick back to that profile that I did of you. I believe it was 2016 for the PBS NewsHour. When you lost your job as the, the digital head of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, it struck me, and it was all over the internet immediately, that you more than telegraphed it to the world. You told the world, hey, I lost my job. I'm completely available for walks, Skype talks. I'm open to anyone. You you made yourself ultra, ultra, ultra vulnerable. And you used the uh, viral aspect of the internet to your benefit. The fact that everybody was going to share this, that it was going to be sent around. It was like the ultimate job posting. And we asked for... Uh, you know, tips and lessons learned from this thing. Like you, you did that in a moment of crisis. You did that in a moment of peak, and the world was in some way professionally falling apart for you. But when you picked up the pieces, when you were employed again, 
we said, what could you share with people that they could do in a, in a kind of a peacetime thing? So I promised you when and if a financial crisis would return to us, that we would come back and get your best advice and, and lessons learned as of the week of it happening. So in this case, I want to get a sense to start with for the kinds of overtures you've been receiving, the kinds of approaches, the kinds of, of parenthetical asides and things that people have been sharing with you in the four or five weeks since this has been declared a pandemic. Yeah, this has been uh, uh, an unusual time in so many ways, but uh, in my business of being a digital consultant, uh, people are contacting me because for, in a way, for 25 years I've been talking about this, that the way we're working needs to change, the way we're thinking needs to change. And not because I'm some prescient person, I just know that we needed to work on digital transformation of companies, organizations, governments, and people. And individually, you can do that as well. And that was our effort, and that's what uh, I've, I've, been, I've been preaching and thinking about and wrestling with for 25 years. And I've gotten all kinds of folks contacting me, uh, some to help them move their conferences onto the internet, make them virtual. I've had people contact me for memorial services and making them online, very tragically. I've had people saying, how do you teach online? I've been teaching, I mean, my first course for money that we did at Columbia was in 2011, almost a decade ago. And today, I have all that learning, uh, 10 years of learning, and I'm still having my own adventures teaching online. And uh, we can talk about that also as, you know, how, how, are, how are people supposed to adjust? The teachers in all over the country, as you know, were given two days to take everything they've done ever in, in, in real life classes and turn them into some magical online course. And that was unfair to every single teacher that that happened to. And you know who else it was unfair to, Robin? Also the students. Yes. Who, just because they're young, doesn't mean they'd ever been in a Zoom call. They'd never learned anything remotely. They learned so much remotely via YouTube, but they had never learned for grades and where a professor can see you. Like the YouTube people that, you know, PewDiePie doesn't, is not watching you when you're watching him, right? It's, right, it's right. that those are the kinds of things that nobody was ready for, nobody, including me. And so when you say, you know, what, what the kind of outreach has been, we, nonprofit organizations asking to help them because they're in existen under existential threat right now. Many of them that depend on money raised at physical galas, how do you do it online? There are some things that you can do online, but they're different, right? So, so every, uh, every day people are contacting me, looking for help, looking for assistance, looking for ideas. And what we want to do is be, connect, be a connector who can help you think about all of these things in this difficult time. And one of the things that I learned doing this kind of work is that uh, your clients uh, are in desperate trouble. That's not when you're trying to sell them anything, right? So what you're doing is solutions, not sales. And I just did an interview with Tanya Reese, who is a part of Edelman's uh, public, you know, they do these barometers of trust. And she's done one already on COVID-19 and brands. And the message from the public to brands and companies was, we want solutions, not sales. And I thought that was very clear and very helpful for the work that I'm trying to do. Just be helpful to people now, and then don't worry about how much you get paid, if you get paid, et cetera, and that will benefit everybody. And that's how I'm trying to operate right now. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Sri Srinivasan. He's a visiting professor of digital innovation at Stony Brook University, formerly chief digital officer of the city of New York, uh, the Metropolitan Museum, and Columbia University. Uh, I'm wondering, and I've, I've posed this to other questions, I seem to get a miscellaneous email from a brand I've interacted with every other day saying that, you know, just for the sake of saying that we're here and we're here and we're in this together. And at what point, I mean, that's kind of tone deaf. I, I understand that brands, uh, you know, their businesses, they need to remind people out there they can't afford to just uh, uh, go comatose for three or four weeks at a time. But it, it definitely feels like overkill at this point. 
Oh, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. A lot of people are in that in that position of getting these emails and they're like, boy, I don't even remember signing up for these guys. And yes, thank you for being there for me, but do I need you to be there for me? Again, if it's a solution, <laughs> that's fine. So what, what I guess this brand study from Edelman was saying was not just that it's important to have a, uh, you know, just to contact people. They were saying have a solution. So if you don't have a solution, just shut up is what I would do. And a solution doesn't mean, you know, you're saving somebody's life. It could mean just giving them some glimmer of hope, some ideas, some thoughts. And that's where you, they can be helpful. And a lot of people are not. What of this uh, advice that you gave in peacetime, in time of full employment, to just get back in touch with old mentors? Not for a transactional reason, but look, we're all homebound right now. We're all getting incessant uh, Zoom requests. What's to be said from that? And then ideally, you know, another another great mentor once told me, if there's nothing else you could do for yourself, at least pose the question, how can I help? Is there anything I can do? Is there anyone I can put you in touch with? That at the very least keeps the network's metabolism, the, the blood flow going. I think that's a great way of doing it and calling. So I've, I've uh, once a day, I call one mentor and just say thank you. And partly because how old I am, that means my mentors are uh, also older. And, uh, you know, we could joke around about this, but we, uh, one of my mentors in Seattle, he's a professor here in New York, he, he said, you're calling to see if I'm still alive, aren't you? And we laughed about it. And partly, Robin, you have to laugh, otherwise you'll cry, right? You have to find time for humor. You have to find time to contact your family and your, your networks, connect, make those connections. But I am making that an effort, a commitment every day to call, talk for 10 minutes and just reconnect. And you're not asking for something, especially your mentors, especially if they're retired, you have nothing to offer them except your voice. And in every single case, they're so grateful. And they're like, hey, you didn't do what you usually do, which is try to make an appointment. You actually picked up the phone and called. A lot of people are rediscovering the power of the telephone, not the texting part of the telephone, but the telephone itself. So suppose you are in the position right now that you've either recently been let go, your company has furloughed you, you, you read the writing on the wall that this is about to happen, um, you realize that maybe there's a month or two of government stimulus and some unemployment left. What, if anything, can you be doing right now to make the best of this awful, awful, hopefully just once-in-a-lifetime moment? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's one of the things that we, could, we, could be think we should all be thinking about. Uh, number one, work on your networks right now. Uh, you know I'm going to say that. Reach out to everybody. Uh, connect with them. Don't ask for a job, but just find out how everybody's doing. Because even that very powerful, very influential friend of yours might be unemployed. A, a guy or gal you thought would never have any trouble in his or her life is probably in trouble as well. So first ask, and then be there for them and talk, and then it'll come around to you. And then they'll ask how you're doing. And then you explain what are the kinds of things you're looking for, what your situation is, where, what about health and safety, all of that. And the other thing that I'm making a campaign for is I'm calling it work on something. Uh, we all have projects that we wanted to do. And I don't just mean painting the, mm. you know, the kids' room. That's a project too. But other projects that we wanted to work on, we wanted to be a stand-up comic, uh, we wanted to write a novel, we wanted to write poetry, we wanted to start a podcast. Uh, you know, all the good podcasts are taken, especially full disclosure, but, uh, you oh, know, shucks. yeah, so are there other things that uh, you wanted to do that you've never had a chance? This is the moment when we all have, for better or worse, more time on our hands. Some people have an hour of time that they're not commuting. Others have 20 hours because they're not working. All of that could be channeled into something positive, and it doesn't have to be huge. It could be just for yourself to work on a single thing if it will work on your skills. A way to think about it is, is it something you could add to your LinkedIn or if someone asked you, what did you do the seven weeks you were unemployed, the three months you were unemployed, what did you do? And you can't say, I just worked on finding a job. Especially in this environment, people know there's not much job hunting going on or career people at the other end, you know, HR people are not sitting around getting those calls or taking calls. So this is when you have to go out and see, can you work on something for your resume and for yourself? So the good news is, 
the tools that do all this are become so much easier than even two years ago in almost any category. It's much cheaper, almost all of it free, and all you need is time. And now you have time. And you have an entire world who of, of people who will not only just welcome your attempts at something, they will also tolerate your bumbling and fumbling around as you try to figure this out. They will be kind to you because they also have time. And if we all worked on something, we will learn something that will be helpful. So let me tell you my three things that I wanted to do. And uh, that has become my COVID project. And uh, the three things are I wanted to learn uh, how to use YouTube, not as a user, we all use it as a user, but as a creator, how to, not as a cons consumer, but how to make things for YouTube. So that was one. Number two, there's an app called Canva, C-A-N-V-A, so Canvas without the S. And it's an image editing design software that's really amazing for uh, you know, making flyers, making uh, social media posts, things like that. And I wanted to learn how to use the free version. Why? Because I'm cheap. But also, I could then say to people, here's a free tool that does 95% of what you would want. So those are two of the things. And the third was that after 9-11 and various crises that have hit us, 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, S Sandy, the tsunami of 20, 2004, I learned that there is a role for journalists who, uh, in the middle of all of those crises, right? The only people who rush toward danger are first responders and journalists. And the journalists who go in are amazing and they need to go in and we need to support them. But there's also a role I discovered for a curator, somebody who sits back a little more cowardly, sits in his office at Columbia at the time and just, just <laughs> gathers good information and feeds it to the public. Just being a, uh, a hunter-gatherer of good, accurate, timely, useful information. So in 2001, we were doing it on clunky web pages. By the tsunami, we were doing it on blogs. By the 2008 Mumbai attacks, you may remember, terrorists took over Mumbai for three days. I was live on a radio proto-podcast live for three days, mm. 18 hours, just live, interviewing people in Mumbai, all of that on, on very basic technology. And when Fukushima happens in 2011, learning all of that, I created just a simple Facebook page where I was able to just put out information that's relevant for American and other journalists about what's happening in Japan. And in that particular case, the highlight of that was a Japanese book about the attacks, I mean, about the Fukushima earthquake and what happened at the nuclear reactor featured my Facebook blog type thing as a credible resource. I mean, I'm still, when I say it out loud now, it sounds so ridiculous <laughs> uh, that they found that useful even in Japan at that time. And so now you fast forward to today, I decided that if I'm going to do that, the best way is to do something live with live streaming on multiple platforms. So every day I have a show where I record Facebook, a live on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And every day I'm out there, I'm talking to people, interesting people, uh, folks I would never connect with, and I call it a daily global show because I have uh, guests from around the world. I just did a session on Sri Lanka where with somebody from the prime minister's office to uh, talking to people in, in Italy, a doctor in Italy who's working on the COVID front lines, to last night I did a show where I interviewed a wonderful photographer, journalist, poet, and a bike messenger. That's all the same person, Kurt Boone, who's been a bike messenger for 25 years in New York. He's a, one of those great New York characters. And he's so positive, so upbeat, while we're cowering inside. He's out there working. He doesn't eat unless he gets a bike messenger job, and there's still those out there. And he said the treat is that at the end of the day, he gets to go to Jacob Javits Center, and where they have that convention hall turned into a hospital where Chef Jose uh, and others 
our celebrity chefs are going and giving them creating gourmet meals for frontline workers, and he's now a frontline worker. He never expected that. So I'm able to do all of this, and we've had hundreds of thousands of people listen over time, uh, only because I decided that this is going to be my project. So it combines my Canva project, my YouTube project, and this, and I'm learning so much, and it's very... Uh, it, it gives me energy. People have said it's uplifting for them. Some person, some wonderful person called it a lifeline. And by the way, there's Tara in the background. And uh, I say this is my lifeline every day to talk to people. I need to connect. I love my family, but these four and the dog are not enough for me to uh, feel like I've, <laughs> I've connected with the world. So every day I connect with the world and I'm learning along the way. And so now I can go to my clients and I can say, here's what, how live streaming works. Here's what I have learned because I've done 35 shows in a row every day. And I, 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 yeah, got I see you have people visiting you from Vietnam, from Kansas City, <laughs> yeah. from the Lower East Side. The right. avatar is, you know, there's this there's this huge desire for you to connect with people. And I'm struck looking at this now. You know, I've been to your apartment, Sri Srinivasan. Um, there's the true equalizing effect between you and, let's say, Chris Cuomo on CNN News or Jimmy Kimmel, because we've all been reduced to setting this up on a Wi-Fi connection with you know, an iPhone, which is, you know, people take for granted the fact that everyone is carrying around a high-powered HD camcorder and recorder today, that that's not something you could have taken for granted uh, during September 11th or even during the blackout of 2003, you know, to take pictures or to be uh, a person who could document anything. All of your guests can avail themselves of these cheap, ubiquitous technologies and things such as YouTube or Canva to make something which right now, according to industry standards, is the very best we can all do. Absolutely. You, you nailed it. And that's where we have to, I, I tell my kids, you know, as much as it feels like, oh my God, we'll run out of toilet paper, we'll run out of hand sanitizer, and we feel like this is a taste of what refugees go through, a tiny, teeny, teeny taste. We're also not in, you know, having bombs fall on our heads. We have the electric, we have electricity, we have the internet, right? Those are things that make it possible for us to live and carry on and work and, and, and do that. And that's why we're blessed. Both my wife and I have jobs where we get paid while we're sitting at home. Imagine the millions of people who cannot get paid unless they show up at the office or at the restaurant or at the hospital or at the store. That's, those are the heroes. And those are the, that's the thing that we need to acknowledge is part of our reality now. Sri, uh, good prof. Tell me that the, the you know one of the meaning of life questions I have is is really what is the point of LinkedIn? Uh, <laughs> I, at the very least, you could use it as a glorified address book. I mean, I bother Dan Roth and those people largely because I, I still am resentful that I've not been declared a LinkedIn influencer, and it's very hard for me to face my mother on the holidays, and she says, "Have you been named a LinkedIn influencer yet?" So at the very least, I use it as a as an address book or a way to get in touch with people if they're connected to me. But like many other people out there, I think. 75% of the people who've made connection overtures, I don't know who they are. If they put me in the Javits Center with them, I might recognize one out of 20. Uh, but it seems like it's something that we're all going to have to rely on in this period of, of, of virtual networks being intensely important. Yeah, I've been saying that LinkedIn is the most underappreciated of, of all the networks. There's so much opportunity, but people don't use it properly. I don't think even everybody who needs to use it understands it. And we're all learning uh, how to use that and what we could do with it. And so what that means is just having a place where your professional networks are all listed is useful. It is not a replacement for all the other things we've talked about, about doing good work, about connecting, about reaching out uh, in more traditional ways. It does not replace that, but it becomes an easy way for people to find you and connect with you when the time comes. So uh, I also tell people, use me, use my LinkedIn by seeing who I'm connected to, who am I reaching out to, who's in my orbit. And that's one of the ways that I can be useful right now. I have many students, current and past, who are looking for help, and I'm able to tell them, go onto my LinkedIn and see who I know. And that's one way in which I can be helpful right now. So uh, you're not a LinkedIn influencer, uh, but you don't have to worry about that. Instead, tell your mom that you are a nice person, and that's more important. And I can't even get access to a good therapist to complain about it. So here I am using you in a 
in a moment of crisis. But I, I do want to, you know, walk, walk me through exactly how you do with this. So, so I can't imagine the volume of emails and text messages and Slack and whatever direct messages that you get during the day. But suppose a former student gets in touch with you or somebody who would cross paths with you at the Met. You are so intensely eclectic. I can imagine you being at O'Hare and meeting a poet and then you're availing yourself of that person's network or the way I connected you to a young woman who was looking for work and you mentored her. If that person is is getting in touch in this environment, what do they do initially? Do they they ask for a phone conversation? They can't just cut to the chase and say, I see you are connected to so-and-so on LinkedIn. I would appreciate an introduction. Yeah, so what I would say is, um, I had that call this morning, 7 a.m. Somebody call, uh, asked if they, we could talk, and I said, 7 a.m. works. And uh, you wouldn't believe, by the way, how many people will say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm too busy, I don't get up that early. <laughs> so uh, if you're reaching out for help, you adjust your calendar, right? Unless you have you know, kids and things like that, and 7 a.m. you're getting ready for Zoom school, so you can't do it. But uh, I've had people say that to me when I give them you know, two options, they say, oh, sorry, those times don't work for me. Uh, but in this case, she said she just, uh, you know, so we did we did speak. And um, what I told her is that this is the time for her to be sort of almost everything I told you, time to be working on something, time to be trying something new, uh, being very uh, honest with herself about what is she capable of, where is she willing to go to work, uh, how many different types of technologies does she know? Is she as open-minded as she thinks she is? And the answer is no. Not everybody is as open-minded as they think they are about certain things. And there are so many uh, 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 you know, ways in which she could develop her skills, uh, put together that sizzle reel, as we call it, uh, of the things she's done, put together a really good portfolio, work on a couple of uh, new skills that she's been wanting to learn, in journalism, a lot of us, including me, get by because we're a deadline-driven business and you're able to just turn it in and just move on. But now is your chance to go back and fix some of those things or really learn them and not BS your way through them like a lot of us have ended up doing in journalism because we don't have time. Mm. And we now have that time. It's a gift. It's a curse. And uh, it's a problem for uh, folks to kind of navigate that. Of course, the past five, six years has seen a true ascent of the gig economy, for better or for worse. Uh, you see that now in, in really crisp relief, how um, you know someone like a Whole Foods or the various food delivery businesses, restaurants cannot exist without delivery drivers right now. Whole Foods and the, the agreement it makes with Amazon Prime customers, they can't schedule people fast enough for Instacart or DoorDash or these other things. Take me kind of on the intellectual curve of gigging. What have you seen with your students, with other creatives that you've interfaced with, of things that people are able to offer online kind of universally. For example, if I wanted to go on, not Fiverr, but what was it, TaskRabbit or one of these things, I bet you I could find a great audio editor in Lithuania who is willing to offer the time like this. Like, What are ways for people who suddenly have much more time on their hands or not gainfully employed or either unemployed or about to become unemployed to be able to dip their toes in the water and, and offer their, their services in the gig economy? I think there are many, many things like you, you just listed, uh, Fiverr, TaskRabbit. There, there are many of those things. But I think if you're truly a creative person, you could, let's say you're a musician, there are so many musical efforts now run by some of the most famous musicians in the world looking to spotlight great talent uh, or are looking for help. Uh, and you say, well, I play the bass. Well, jump in there and let's let's see you what you can do right but you you're not going to get in touch with Lin Manuel Miranda and he's you know he's doing things publicly but that doesn't mean he wants to do things with you publicly you have to earn your way there it's almost like you're putting out songs or you know whatever it is short stories books whatever it is uh, books take much longer but short stories there are things that you could do you know we've had a month it's completely real realistic and okay to be beaten down by what's happened, to be exhausted, to be run down. But it's not okay to stay down. You have to do something. You have to step up. You have to pull yourself up. And this is not, you know, those Republican uh, talking points, right? What do they say, Robin? You have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And as Nick Kristof says, you actually can't do that. You'll fall on your face and break your nose. Uh, what I'm saying is uh, you want to prepare for the trouble that's coming ahead that is already here, but also when the world clears, as it's going to, 
it's not going to be that V-shaped bounce back that the president keeps saying, and it's not going to be the U that people say. You know, V means immediately down, up. A U means down, and then low. You know, stays low and then goes up to create a U. I think it's more going to be a reverse J, where it goes down, stays down, and then comes up a little bit. And over time, it makes that U. For 2008, mm. or well, let's see, go back to 9/11. 9/11, that U took matter of months, right? Four or five months, we were able to understand the contours of where things were. In uh, in the 2008 crisis, it took three, four years for people to feel like, okay, the U is back. This could be years, years and years, because we don't know about second waves, third waves. You don't know who is, you know, terms like that we hadn't heard about. I'm going to do a segment on just the language of the virus, right? Words like apex and shedding and flattening the curve. These are all things that we never knew that we have to care about. And what 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 does the world look like after this? One of my friends did a story about how you can see the sky in parts of India that you couldn't see the blue sky because there's less pollution now. Oh, we're making less with... So in a, the, the smallest thing you can do, you should try. In our home, we said, we're not going to use paper towels, uh, you know, the standard uh, bounty type paper towels. And uh, it's been a month without paper towels in this house. And we probably ran through without ever thinking about it so many paper towels. And now we use washcloths and we wash them and wash them by hand or wash them in the machine, right? Like just thinking, what are little things that you can do that are helping ease the burden of the planet? I'm hoping that this will wake up people, but knowing the politics of this country and knowing how much people are, are divided and are anti-intellectual and anti, you know, the, the people who are going to save us are the people who believe in science and the elites that are demonized by the president and others. So without getting political, I just say to everybody, what is one small thing that you can do? You can try to do the big things, but work on something small that you can do as well. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Professor Sri Srinivasan of Stony Brook University, where he is Marshall Loeb Visiting Professor of Digital Innovation. Uh, Sri has worn a, a million prestigious hats. Uh, he was formerly Chief Digital Officer of New York City and the Metropolitan Museum and Columbia University. He's variously podcasting, he's YouTubing, he's linking in. Uh, before this pandemic, he'd be on flights to South Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, I want to get uh, an idea, if you can look into your crystal ball, what is this going to do to some of the uh, you know, great developments that we thought we had in you know, both for better or for worse? I mean, for example, co-working. Are we going to jump back into that immediately? We work is in a crisis right now. Um, working from home, is this going to become less taboo or less exotic than it used to be? Um, what about trust issues of getting on the subway or getting on a crowded flight? And you know, I just think about general comedy. I mean, uh, shaking a person's hand, hugging a person, the warmth of taking one-on-one -on -one meetings with everybody. I'm certainly very sick and tired of Zoom. I, I miss human interaction. Yeah, that's a lot of things. I, I always say, by the way, that I'm not a good predictor because if I were, I would uh, be very rich because I would have predicted the rise of a lot of different things properly instead of just saying they're going to happen and not uh, putting my putting any money down. Well, let, let's start with the lowest hanging fruit for anybody who's been reluctant to, to, to go full on digital. I mean, this has kind of forced everybody's hands. The TV networks are seeing advertised advertising decimated. I think Barry Diller was on CNBC remotely today and, you know, they IAC owns Expedia. He says, we typically do $5 billion in advertising a year. We won't even do a billion this year. For those people who were on the fence about digital, espousing digital, this is going to kind of yeah, force uh, the absolutely. issue. Absolutely. And I, in fact, retweeted that same topic, uh, the same quote from, from Barry Diller, that from $5 billion to one, and that's just one company. And that across the board tells you everything you need to know about how bad things are going to be. Uh, in terms of working from home. Um, some people are going to say that this is the greatest thing because now you know the value of working from home and how cool it is and all of that. But others are also realizing that, oh my God, I miss my colleagues and I miss uh, the, uh, my friends and uh, the, you know we need to be connected. And that's what I think people are going to have to learn from, uh, learn, uh, learn all over again. But do we really need to go uh, to a conference uh, halfway across the world and be there in person for a day and then fly all the way back. One of the things that has disturbed me over 
my three years running this business since we met is uh, my carbon footprint. And um, the first year I flew 275,000 miles uh, to conferences, the most ridiculous of which was flying to Turkey for 10 hours to be 10 minutes on stage. And was that worth it in any way? There was some money and the money was worth it, but was it the right thing to do for the planet? Was it the right thing to do for to my family? Was it the right thing to do for my own body and the radiation up in the sky? Like all of those things uh, I, I'm now much more aware of. And la so I went from 275 to 70 and I thought that was pretty good. And this year I was on track uh, to stay around the 70,000 miles. And I'm going to have to justify every second I'm on a plane from now on if it's not to see family. I, it's going to be very hard to give up this non-flying time, sitting in Ubers, going to JFK. How many times are we doing that? Will there be better options? Will there be better connections to the airports? Those are the things that I'm going to look for as, and I'm, I, you know, and can we connect in, in, in better, different ways? And will that benefit all of us as we try to think about this is something that I'm now, uh, mulling as we look at the opening, but the opening is not going to come the way the president thinks that we can just suddenly open up everything because we're a country where you could lock down one county, but the county next door, people come shopping in your county. What's going to happen there? And a million examples of that. And so uh, we have to, you know, be as uh, as patient and as thoughtful as we can be in a environment, a media environment, but where those are not useful traits. You don't become successful in American media today by being patient or thoughtful. You become successful in the media environment by being noisy, by uh, shaking a big stick and carrying a big, you know, whatever those analogies are. And uh, I am I am worried about how we come out of this. I, I'm hoping it'll be all positive, but I am worried that it will not be positive. Well, Professor, I mean, the corollary on that in the 10 minutes or so we have left uh, with you is so many people are binging all manner of media right now, but never have you seen uh, so many publications out there being upfront and telling you we are in a fight for our lives. Someone like Slate, uh, which you typically wouldn't expect that from. It's not like your local struggling regional newspaper outlet. I mean, there are the New York Times of the world, which have kind of found their groove, and the Wall Street Journal, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch, and the LA Times was even saved by uh, a billionaire out there, but they're still having furloughs. My question to you is, and this goes back to kind of uh, the digital citizenship question, is there seems to be login fatigue writ large. I mean, I am bunching the New York Times asking me to renew my subscription with Netflix, with Hulu, with Spotify, with all these players out there. Um, and I feel for so many people at publications who had to take this from a kind of a secular perspective in that print journalism was in a decline for a long time and there was no business model. And suddenly what's kind of left of the advertising has been pulled out from under them. Yep. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. These are all, uh, we're, we're seeing more news being consumed than ever before and less advertising to support it in some ways than ever before. And so we need these local, uh, we've seen now, if there was any doubt, the value of local journalism. We're seeing, we've seen now where uh, it matters, where you're telling the truth and not lying or uh, sharing bad information. We've seen, we're seeing the value of all of that now. And that's why you're seeing Google launch an emergency, like a journalism emergency fund. You're seeing Facebook giving out grants. And uh, it'd be fair to say that they helped put some of these situations, you know, some of, make some of this happen. Some of it happened because of audience taste. Some of it happened because of mismanagement by uh, news organizations who thought the party they had for the last half of the 20th century would carry on in the new world. And, uh, and we're seeing all of that happen come together in real time under a cloud of death that that's also in, in, uh, you know enveloped us. So that's that's what's happening. And I wonder, by the way, Robin, and I don't know if anybody has asked you this or you thought about this. What if our how would our government's response have been different if we were attacked by aliens instead of a microbe or a virus? How would how would we have acted differently? And would we have made the right call 
the saddest thing that I look at each day is the uh, chart that the FT puts out, amazing free chart that anyone can access, FT coronavirus, and they show the flattening of the curves or the curves, right? They're not flattened yet. And you see where South Korea is and the decisions made by people, governments, mm. and companies results in a flat, I mean, it goes up and then flat for weeks, really flat for weeks. And you look at the United States and the United States is still on the upswing. And, the, and what is the sad part of that? That the very first case in both countries was discovered on the same day. And us, allegedly the greatest country in the world, the richest country in the world, decided that this is how we're going to tackle it or not tackle it. And look at where we are. Look at the opportunity. Look at every mistake that govern, governments at the national and local level made. And when you're on your Facebook, as I was yesterday, was a was, yesterday was an example of a day that I'll never forget. I opened up my Facebook in the morning in bed, as we all do, and four out of the first six, seven things I saw were of people who died on, uh, on uh, you know, somebody in their family died from COVID-19. Uh, somebody's sister, somebody's mm. brother, somebody's grandmother. Now she was 90, but she didn't have to die that day, right? Not today, right? She, she lived a great life and everything, and we're glad she made it to 90, but there was no rule saying that she can't make it to 91, but she didn't because of this, this, and this is where you can, you, you, we have to hold our political parties, our politicians accountable for this. And we have to do this absolutely now and after the crisis is over. And uh, the other thing I was just going to say on the other end of the same day, we received this package in the mail from Vancouver and we opened it up and uh, in it were a bunch of face masks, maybe a hundred face masks. And I was so moved by that. And I look and I don't recognize this name. And it turns out it's a friend of mine in Hong Kong who bought a hundred and gave it to a friend flying to Vancouver who then went to the post office and mailed it to us. How incredible, what a gesture. And then she deliberately bought the kind that I haven't seen here, which are each are in their own Ziploc bag so that you can hand them to people. So she said to me afterwards, these are for you, wow. but also she's, because I've said on my show that I'm guilty about feeling guilty about using masks when we're healthcare workers. She says, go give them to anybody because they're completely safe. They're individually wrapped plastic uh, face masks. I've never seen those before. So that's the kind kindness that we're seeing. We're seeing uh, malfeasance. We're seeing kindness. We're seeing dishonesty. We're seeing love. And all of it is coming together at the same time. Sri, close us out. Um, this is the part of the episode where I typically call it free skate. I mean, you weren't in the United States, I think, in the era of roller skating rinks and everything. But this is when the DJ would take over and say, you know what? We got the air supply going on. Uh, skate as you like. I'm going to dim the lights. But uh, you are clearly resourceful and well-traveled and, and seasoned and cultured enough to tell me what I should be asking, the questions we all should be posing. Well, right first, here. I should tell you that I was here. Uh, I arrived in 1980, which is the tail end of that era. But because I was a good immigrant kid, wasn't allowed to go to all of those things and uh, not explore it the way I would have liked. I was <laughs> trying to you. flatter you, <laughs> sir. You. Could you just please accept flattery? <laughs> Always accept it. You know, they say of beware of Greeks bearing gifts, but never, never wonder about Iranians bearing gifts. But anyway, go ahead. Uh, so I turned 50 in October. I planned to anyway. And my wife, who's super organized, who hates big parties, said... Um, Okay, you, you, you can have a big party because I know you'll want one, a Sri bash, as he calls it, you know, hundreds of people uh, at a da on the dance floor, so you can have that. But she's going to have curated dinners and lunches that weekend. We're going to pick a weekend. And so that was all planned. She even got the announcements out a year in advance. Nobody does that. And, of course, God laughs at such plans. And what I, I would say to all of us is we have, an, we have a choice now going forward from this. If we all make it, not all, everybody will. But uh, this reminds me of the show, the, the, the Leftovers. You know, everyone's talking about contagion, but the HBO show, The Leftovers, where suddenly 2% of the world has vanished. And uh, it's going to be less than that, but the, the same principle. And you have to think of how you pay tribute to the people who have vanished, who have left us too early. And you have to think about the world we're going to leave to our children, because this is going to happen again. And it's going to be worse the next time if we aren't ready. 
if we don't learn from our mistakes. As I said, we didn't learn and nothing changed from 9-11. And that's exactly that could happen again. Uh, you, you, you know, when we say we're going to pull out of the uh, pull out of the Paris Agreement, when this is the deadline year for climate change, if we don't fix things, that's before Corona, things are going to be much, much worse. And 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 so we have to, you know, and now we're going to pull out of WHO funding. <laughs> like WHO has a lot to answer for in the things it did and didn't do, but it needs the money now in the middle of the pandemic. You can, and, and its budget that America contributes is so tiny. It's like less than one American hospital budget that America pays for uh, compared to what, what the world needs. And America is safer when WHO is out there doing its job. And that's the principle that Americans haven't understood, that we buy 50 hand sanitizers and, uh, because we want to be safe, but I'm only safe if 49 other people have the hand sanitizer. It doesn't matter how many I own. If everyone doesn't have a bottle, I'm dead anyway. That's the, an American, that's the thing that Americans haven't grasped, haven't understood, and I hope we will understand that going forward. How antsy are you to go out there and dine with people again and, and re-embrace the, the Manhattan that you so love and was kind of ripped away from everybody a little over a month ago? Very, very antsy. I, I, you know, because I'm doing this daily show, I, it's now 35 days. It feels like it's been gone very fast and very slow at the same time. There are uh, burgers that I want to eat, pizza joints I want to go to. We put down some money as gift cards for some restaurants because we wanted to support them today instead of waiting till later. Uh, I want to go get a haircut. <laughs> and I just want to be the New York City we love. But I'm going to be very cautious, especially with my children, and saying it looks completely, I mean, I'm looking out my window right now. It's a beautiful day and clear and clean, but there's something in the air that could kill us. And that's what, if you've seen that movie, Avatar by James Cameron, right? They're on this foreign planet where everything's trained to kill human beings. It feels like that same situation when you're when you're out there. So when my dog and I are going out there, we we don't know what's happening and what mistake we make that might that we might regret. Professor Sri Srinivasan, uh, needless to say, you are always welcome on this show. I'm grateful to know you. I'm grateful to avail myself of your network, which just blows my mind. It gives me an aneurysm every time I try to get around your connections on LinkedIn. But uh, you, sir, are one of a kind and uh, nothing but the best to you and your family. Same to you. Thank you for what you do. Sharing and creating good content in the middle of this crisis is one of the things that we can do. And you're doing a beautiful job as always. Good luck. Thank you. Likewise. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Enjoy this program on NPR member station VPM News on NPR.org and on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. And of course, we are on Twitter and Facebook at handle Full D Radio. I'm Robin Farzad. Hang in there. Back with you next week.